good to be here with you this morning. We are getting back into the book of Mark this morning, the gospel of Mark. Uh, We've been planting our feet and walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. If you want a Bible this morning, just slide your hand up. Our ushers would love to bring you a Bible so that you could be following with us, following in God's holy word. And so they're there. You betcha. All right. So here we go, guys. Back into the Bible, back into Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2 today. We've made it through Mark chapter 1. We've got 16 to go. We've got a long process ahead of us of walking through this, but it has been so good. It has been so rich for my own soul as a pastor, uh, working on my heart during the week, looking at what Christ has done for us. So up to this point, we have been witnessing much about Jesus Christ, his life, and his ministry. And remember, Mark is, Mark is reporting kind of like little shots of history here and there, just hitting it hard. Not a lot of detail, but what he gives is so deep and so full. Last week, we, we witnessed a scandalous account. We witnessed a scandalous account of Jesus healing a man with debilitating leprosy. This disease, this condemned man hears about Jesus Christ and he pursues him and he pursues him illegally and he falls on his knees and confesses his urgent need of cleansing from this infectious disease that he has. And then Jesus, full of pity, reaches out and touches his leprous body, right? And he says to him, I will be clean. And immediately, the Bible tells us that the leprosy left this man. He was completely and totally made clean. And then Jesus commanded him to to keep this news to himself, but then go and tell the priests. And there was a whole process uh, for his cleansing. And he told him to go and show the priests as proof to them that he has been cleansed. But instead, he goes and shares the news with everybody he meets. He goes to the town, and then Jesus has to be driven to the desolate places because of the fame that is being spread. He can't even go near a town. And so we marveled at this story last week, and then we applied it to ourselves in a specific way last week. The cleansing of this leper, right, it speaks of a greater truth. It speaks of the gospel You and I and all humanity, we all have a universal problem, and it's the problem of sin, that we are polluted, that we are stained by our sin, and that all of us, like the leper, must confess our urgent need of cleansing, and Christ is the only way of cleansing. We needed to receive his merciful cleansing which comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then this, this showed us that we need to be reconciled back to God, back to his presence, and it's only Jesus that brings us back to God's presence. So this healing of this leper amazed us. And it's amazing in and of itself, this miracle, but it speaks of a greater and glorious truth, right? It was showing us the gospel. Over and over again, we're going to see through the gospel of Mark, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. Every time you see Jesus heal somebody or deliver somebody or raise them from the dead in the gospels, it is preaching the gospel to us. There is a greater truth. It's always the eternal over the temporary so that we can believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, Jesus Christ as God and have faith in him. He is God. He is God. And we're going to see that even in this next section, even more boldly proclaimed. We're going to witness another healing today. But in this healing, the gospel message is not so much through kind of this living parable, this this healing that, that teaches, but it is boldly declared by Jesus Christ himself that he has the authority to forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. And through this this morning, we're going to be confronted with the the greatest proposition we could ever hear. The greatest proposition on our own lives. That your sin can be forgiven in Jesus Christ alone. Only God can forgive sins. And so we're going to look at that here in chapter 2. So starting in verse 1, 
chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, we could just read this and meditate on this all day. We could just meditate on this glorious truth that that you are a God that loves to save. You are a God that loves to forgive. You are a God that loves to heal and to heal eternally. Lord, we thank you for your word that guides us, your word that guides us into all truth. We thank you for your spirit that uses your word in in our hearts and changes us. Lord, we ask again that you would work actively in us this morning. Would you produce faith? As we're looking at this story, we're going to see faith on display, active, radical faith. And so, Lord, that kind of faith, we can't come up with that on our own. That all comes from you. And so would you grant that faith to us this morning? Help us to believe. We ask all this in the name of your son. Amen. All right. So, who else but God can do what you just read? Who else but God can heal and forgive? Only God. We were singing about that this morning. Who other than God can instantly heal a man from a lifelong affliction? But even more than that, who other than God could heal a man from his greatest need? Only God can do that. Well, we've just seen in the previous text before this, uh, we already seen that the fame of Christ was being spread everywhere, all through Galilee, right? That Jesus was this great healer. Jesus was this great preacher with authority. And he was, he was so famous at that time that he couldn't even enter a town because of the crowds. It was too much. The crowds were too thick. And he couldn't escape them. Although he loved them and he continued to passionately heal them, his ministry was so much more. His ministry was about preaching the kingdom of God. Remember that? Verse 38, he said, that's why I came out, to preach the gospel. And so at this time, he had to evade the towns. He had to evade the crowds. He had to stay in the outlying areas and people were coming to him. That's what we learned last week when we, when we closed off chapter 1. And this went on for some time. We see in verse 1 here that it says, after some days. Now, some days is kind of an indefinite saying here. Um, But we can assume by looking at the other Gospels uh, that that this, this could have been weeks and perhaps even months. Some days. Some days because by the time he returns, it it shows up here that the crowds have dissipated and he's sneaking or, or coming back secretly into his hometown of, of Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum is this fishing town 
where he first taught with authority in the synagogue, where he exercised a demon in the synagogue, where he healed Peter's mother-in-law from the fever that all took place in Capernaum, and then he healed hundreds if not thousands of people. He returns. This is a town that he adopts as his own. Remember, he was from Nazareth, but now he's in Capernaum. This is where Peter and Andrew are from, and he adopts this as his town. It says in verse 1 that he was at home. This is now his, his home, his place to, to rest, his place to rejuvenate, his place to plan the mission and pursue the mission. But also we see in these verses, his presence cannot be hidden for long. Verse 2 says, many were gathered together. The news got out again so that there was no more room at this house, not even room at the door. Now remember, this house is, is most likely the house of Peter and Andrew, and this house would not be like our homes today. We have, we have very extravagant, vast homes today. Yeah, their homes were more utilitarian, right? Smaller. They just served the, the functions. They don't have a man cave and a sewing room and all these kinds of things, right? It was utilitarian, and they were smaller. But in this home, we can see here that 50, maybe upwards to 50 people could stand shoulder to shoulder. It was a packed house. Just imagine that scene. The desire to see, the desire to hear, the desire to be in the presence of the Savior of the world packs this room. There wasn't even room at the door for him or for anybody else. And he was preaching to them. The NASB says that he was speaking the word to them. So Jesus is preaching. He is, he is feeding his sheep. And he was most likely sticking close to his original message that the kingdom of God is near. It's time to repent and believe in the gospel. That is the gospel message he was sharing. It was a message from God himself. And then as we see all of this going on, all of a sudden we see an intrusion into his preaching, an intrusion into this gathering. We see a group of five men headed towards this house where Jesus is teaching. Verse 3, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now we have no idea who these men are, uh, but we see that they are carrying a paralytic man, which means that he was physically disabled to the point of not being able to walk. A paralytic man, unable to walk on his own. And these friends are packing him, carrying him, in order for him to be in the presence of this preacher, of this healer. This man had serious disablement. Just like the leper we learned last week. He would have been outcast. He would have been on his own. He, he, he wasn't able to provide for himself. He would have to depend on people. And this man and his friends hear that Jesus, the greatest preacher, the greatest healer, is near. And so by faith, they go and they pursue him. They pack up their friend and they go to Jesus. And we don't know how long it takes them to get there. We don't even know where they come from. But they would have traveled miles if they, if they needed to. And we see here that the crowds have beat them to Jesus. The crowds have gotten there first, so much so that they cannot get near the house. The house is so full, they can't, they can't get in. And they want so bad to bring their friend into the presence of Christ. And so they give up and they go home. Is that what it says? No, they don't give up and they go home. They do all that they can to bring their friend into the presence of Jesus Christ. Instead of giving up and going home, they come up with a plan. They love their friend too much. And so they don't let these crowds, they don't let doors, they don't let buildings get in the way of them and Jesus Christ. Verse 4. And when they, they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Just stop and think about that for a minute. Think about the faithfulness of these friends, right? They want to get their friend to the, to the presence of Jesus Christ, and they're going to go to no end to make that happen. 
Just think about your own life for a minute on, on, on a bit of a side application here. Do you have faithful friends like that? Are you a faithful friend like that? That you would take your friend against all odds and bring them into the presence of Jesus Christ? What faithful friends? Friends that would tear a roof off of a building to get into the presence of Jesus? We need to thank the Lord for friends like that and pray towards that in our own life that we would be friends like that. Now, this house wouldn't have had tar and gravel shingles and plywood like we have today. Uh, This roof would have been a flat roof. It would have been strong enough to be a patio. There would have been an outside set of stairs going up, and you would spend time on the roof of your home in the evening. So there would have been a structure of timbers across the top with stringers in between and smaller pieces of wood which would then be covered with mud and straw and branches and thatching. And in many cases, uh, to keep the rain out, there would be mud-baked tiles on the roof. In fact, Luke's gospel says in Luke 5.19, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So this roof... It wasn't easy to get into. This was going to take some work. And these faithful friends were not going to give up. In fact, they took radical steps. Radical steps so that their friend could be restored. And so they dig through the roof. They make a hole big enough to lower their friend down to the very presence of Jesus. Just imagine the disruption. Just imagine somebody coming through the roof here this morning. All of a sudden, somebody pops through the roof. Digging and working frantically. They make a hole big enough for their friend. Remember, Jesus is teaching in this house. Everybody is leaning in to hear him. To hear the word of God that he is speaking. And all of a sudden, they hear people up on the roof. Digging and working frantically to make a hole. Dirt and twigs and noise would have been so disrupting. But they were determined. They were faithful. And the next thing you would see is this this man coming down, suspended on his bed with some kind of ropes, whatever the case may be, lowering down to the presence of God. I can just imagine how upset some people would be. Right? They're there to hear the king, to hear the message. And they are being disrupted. I mean, we get upset if somebody butts in line at Tim Hortons, right? Getting between us and our double-double. We would get upset. You know, our attitude to people who, who are late, we would say to them, you snooze, you lose. Like, we are here. This is our place. Come back later. Could you just imagine how bothered some of the people would be by this? It would be disturbing, Imagine if you own this house and somebody's busting through your roof to bring somebody in for the sake of one man. Think about Jesus. He's in the middle of a sermon, preaching with power, preaching with authority. He's probably on his second or third point of his alliterated sermon, right? No, I don't think so. But just think about it. There was even a threat that Jesus would be upset. The word of God was being shared, and it was being interrupted. But instead of Jesus being angry, verse 5 says this, And when Jesus saw their faith, when he saw the faith of this paralytic, when he saw the faith of his four friends, he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And so look at that. He says, when he saw their faith, when he saw their faith, he doesn't respond in rejection or anger. He responds in love and grace. And the faith Jesus saw was not just faith in miracles. It was not just faith in the fantastic. The faith that Christ saw in them was their belief in him. That they believed who he was. That, he, that they believed the message that he was preaching throughout all of Galilee. 
Remember, chapter 1, verse 15, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and that it's time to repent and believe. Same word, faith, believe. To believe in the gospel. Friends, these men didn't believe just in the miracles. Miracles, believing in miracles is not saving faith. Faith in the fantastic doesn't provide forgiveness. It's faith in a person that saves. It's faith in the gospel that saves and forgives. That you bank everything on Jesus Christ. That you let nothing come between you and him. It's radical faith that comes from God. Which leads to our first point. Do you have radical faith? Do you have radical faith? Will you pursue him at all cost? Will you take the radical measures necessary just to be, be in the forgiving presence of Jesus Christ? The faith that we witness here is not just a word. The faith that we witness here is proved by action. It's not just saying that you believe. It's not just saying, I believe. It's believing to the point of letting nothing, letting nothing stand between you and Jesus Christ. Do you pursue Jesus like this? Are you willing to disrupt your life? to disrupt the comforts of your life, to let nothing stand between you and Jesus Christ? Are you willing to forsake all good reason just to be with him and to be forgiven by him? And so when you think about your life, when God looks at your life, when he is watching you last week or in the week to come, does he see faith? And does he see faith that is proven by action? Faith actually moves you. Faith moves you. Or is our faith safe? Is our faith mundane? Is our faith Milk toast faith, mediocre faith, low commitment faith, pedestrian faith, weak faith? You know, we, we Canadians are known for being apologetic, right? We're known for being so polite. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to step on anybody's toes. Sometimes our neighbors don't even know that we are Christians. Sometimes we have not been bold enough to share the true faith with our family. Sometimes we're afraid to pray in public. Our faith today is often more than not just too safe. It's too mediocre. It is not radical believing, active faith. When we, this last week, we just celebrated 501 years of Reformation. Radical Reformation. 501 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. 501 years of protesting against the Catholic Church, against the corrupt teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. You see, people began to read the Bible for themselves in their own language. They were rediscovering what the Bible actually taught. They began to understand that the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. According to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Salvation doesn't come through incantations or indulgences or money or works. It was a rediscovery of the gospel truth. Causing an uprising that produced faith that led to action. To the point of protest. That's where we get the word Protestant. We're Protestants. We protest who protest against the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. 
even to the point of death. People were put on trial just for reading God's word. Men and women were burnt at the stake for opposing the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. People were drowned in cages because they believed in believers' baptism. They were letting their faith lead them to action. They really, truly believed. And it was radical action. And so we ask ourselves, as we think about that and we look at our lives today, where is the radical faith? Where is the belief? Where is the faith that moves our feet? Would we go to such lengths as these men to be in the presence of Christ in his word? Would you die? Would you die for your faith? Would you be a martyr for the gospel? This paralyzed man and his four friends had such radical faith. And when they saw Jesus and Jesus saw their faith, he rewards their faith. It's real faith. But he rewarded it in a way that was even more scandalous than than a hole in the roof. He says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. This is scandalous. This is the most scandalous response Jesus could have made. It's the truth claim that unites, but it's also a truth claim that divides. It's the truth claim that saves, and it's the truth claim that condemns. It's the truth claim that you love, or it's the truth claim that you hate. Jesus is God. It's your second point. Jesus is God. He has the authority to forgive sin. You see, these crowds stuffed in this house, there was a mixed audience going on here. There is some of those that would have just been there to come and see the miracles. There would have been genuine believers. But there would have been those who were also suspicious, right? Those who were questioning the whole thing. If you look at Luke's gospel, Luke said that that there was Pharisees among the crowd, The Pharisees means separate ones. They were the holy leaders who held uh, the Jews to the Old Testament law. But then they also added hundreds of more laws as well. And then Mark's gospel shows us in verse 6 that there were scribes here as well. There were scribes. Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there. So if the Pharisee was a lawmaker, the scribes were like lawyers. Now, if you're a lawyer, we love you this morning. But these guys were like lawyers, and they, they, were, they, were, they were more like the professional theologians, okay? They knew the Old Testament inside and out. And in fact, they were charged with copying text to text, making the copies, scribing. That's where they get their name. They were called to preserve God's word. They knew God's word inside and out. And they were listening intently to every word watching every move of Jesus. And so Jesus, just imagine that hole in the roof, this man coming down before him. Jesus sees the faith of this paralyzed man and his friends, and he rewards him with forgiveness. Rewards him with forgiveness. But these scribes, they began questioning, which is reasoning in their hearts. Verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were in absolute shock that Jesus could ever make such a statement, that he would claim that he could forgive sins. It seems that they might have been fine with his miracles and maybe even his teaching so far, but to claim that he could forgive sins means that he was claiming to be God himself. And this was scandalous. This was blasphemy in the eyes of the scribes. And the Pharisees, they would have charged them with slander, blasphemy. Blasphemy means to defame the very name of God himself. And in the Old Testament, this would have been punishable by death. Leviticus 24, 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. 
All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. This was a serious matter. You claim to be like God or God, you're worthy of death. And so here, this is the first indication we have in the Gospel of Mark of confrontation against the system, against the Jewish system. And this would move forward as we go forward here towards his death on the cross. But Jesus makes these bold claims. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, uh, just on a side note, remember, in, in Jesus, even in Jesus' humanity, Jesus was omniscient, which means he was all-knowing. And Jesus also knows the mind of man, John 2.25. Jesus said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? So these guys are questioning these things internally. Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And so let me ask you this morning, which is easier? Which is easier for Jesus to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to rise up and walk? Which is easier? Well, we'd have to say that none of that is easy, right? All of that can only be done by God. None of these things are easier. Only God can do this. So why is Jesus asking this this way? Which is easier? Well, you can think of it this way. That in a sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because this is something that cannot be proved, right? You can't see that. Whereas to say rise and walk is something that is proved by sight. You can see that. But when you think about it on a deeper level, what Jesus is getting at here is that he wants these scribes to understand that both of these are possible only by God himself. And that his claim to do so means that he is God. That's why he says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus' favorite reference to himself is the Son of Man. goes back to Daniel. We'll look at that later. But that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is God. He claimed to be God. He proved himself as God. He has the authority to forgive sins. And the scribes rightly respond, although this is not what they intended, they rightly respond, who can forgive sins but God alone? Their own testimony goes against themselves. Jesus came to forgive sinners. If you look at the whole Bible, this whole book, the overarching story, the overarching theme in this whole book is that Jesus forgives sinners. From beginning to end, Jesus forgives sinners. If you wanted to tell somebody what the Bible's about, it's about that. Redemption. That's why we name our church Redemption. It's about Jesus forgiving sinners. The whole Old Testament points forward to this. And the whole New Testament points back to this. Jesus is the center of all history. And his purpose is to glorify his God, or to glorify his Father, by forgiving sinners. And so he came. He came to forgive you. He came to forgive me. And he came to forgive others through you. So do we believe that? Do we believe that we were once criminals in the courthouse of God? That we have committed eternal crimes against a holy Lord? Friends, Apart from Christ, we are guilty of sin. As the leper taught us last week that we need to be cleansed of our sinful corruption, this paralytic teaches us that we need to have our crimes against God 
put away. They need to be forgiven. We need to have the guilt of our sin taken away, the sentence taken away. In the economy of God, you are guilty until proven innocent. The guilt had to be taken away. So the Old Testament shows us over and over again, blood had to be spilled for the remission of sins. When you look back to the garden, you see Adam and Eve sowing fig leaves to cover up their shame and their guilt because of their sin. But then by the grace of God, he pursues them. He removes the leaves. And he covers their shame with animal skins. This shows us that sin cannot be covered up by ourselves. We cannot be hidden from God. We cannot hide our sin from God. As God covers Adam and Eve with animal skins, we have to logically understand that an animal had to be killed. Blood had to be spilled. Payment had to be made. God was teaching us that our guilt and our shame can only be covered by him alone. Through a substitute alone. The Old Testament is full of the gospel pointing towards Jesus Christ and his death for us. This happens through the cross. Sin had to be paid for. Guilt had to be taken away. The crimes against a holy God had to be pardoned. Like the scribe said, who can forgive sins but God alone? That is his economy. And Jesus is God. Jesus is God and he has the authority to forgive our sins. So this is the greatest this is the greatest proposition you will ever hear. This is the greatest question that be, can that can be asked. How can my sins be forgiven against a holy God? And there is eternal implications for how you respond to this. Can my sins be forgiven by a holy God? Do you wrestle with that? Have you wrestled with that? John Calvin said, But if there is anything in the whole of religion that we should most certainly know, we ought most closely to grasp by what reason, with what law, under what condition, with what ease or difficulty, forgiveness of sins may be obtained. It is the greatest proposition. And so if you have forgiveness this morning... If you, like the paralytic, believe in Jesus as God and you have faith that your sins can be forgiven by him, you have answered rightly. God has pursued you. You have responded in faith. Romans 8 tells us if you have done that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our forgiveness in Christ, it becomes our life song. It becomes our everything. It brings us to the place where we can truly sing lyrics like this. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Is that the song that you sing today? Is that what moves you? Is that what fuels you? Is that what puts action in your steps? Friends, those are just words. If you have never been confronted with this question, this proposition in your life, It's the greatest proposition that could ever be proclaimed that Jesus is God and you can have your sins forgiven in him. Everybody that's outside of this building this morning in this neighborhood needs to hear this proposition. But we're no longer busting through roofs to get into the presence of Jesus Christ. We need to now bust out of our normal, mediocre faith and pursue the lost. Putting action in our steps. The faith that moves is radical faith. They're just words if you've never been confronted with that faith.
So where are you with all of this? Is, is Christ's forgiveness your eternal song? Or have you not thought deeply enough about what he has proclaimed? This is the most urgent, most pressing truth you could ever hear. Is Jesus God? Does he have authority to forgive my sins? Or are my sins forgiven? Are they truly forgiven? Have I truly turned from my life and turned to God? Have I surrendered my pride? Have I humbled myself to his loving authority? And have I received his forgiveness? John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. If you believe, if you have faith, you truly believe in him, you are no longer condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so we have to respond. Will you respond like the paralytic and his friends? Will you have radical faith? Faith that can only come from God? Or you, will you remain like the scribes? Will you remain like the Pharisees? Will you remain in hostile denial, point three? Will you reject him against all truth? These these scribes and Pharisees, they were questioning within themselves, and they, they, they took extreme offense at the claims of Christ. That he had the authority to forgive this man, they said. That he was claiming power that only God had. It struck them to the heart. It offended their pride. Friends, these men were experts in the Scriptures. They knew them inside out. This should have been so obvious to them how Jesus was fulfilling everything that they have been reading. But this was just the beginning of their hostile denial. As Jesus' ministry unfolds, the Pharisees and the scribes will pursue him to the death. They will challenge every claim that he has over and over again. As Jesus proves his deity, they will try all the more to stop him. That he would shut his mouth. And so if you are a believer here this morning, we love you enough to share the truth. Or sorry, if you were an unbeliever this morning, we love you enough to share, you, share with you the truth that if you reject that Jesus is God, you are rejecting all truth. The Bible is the truth. It points to one. Even the revelation of this universe points to God and that he is powerful. And then his special revelation, God's word, points us to one who can save you from your sin. If you reject the truth, you reject the reality that your sins need to be forgiven. You are in hostile denial of the truth. So although we will learn that some Jewish leaders would come to believe in Jesus, the majority did not. The majority made up the crowd that would one day say, crucify him, crucify him. And those words will echo in their hearts for all eternity. And if you, you reject the truth of God, those same words will resonate forever in your heart too. We need to receive this. We need to believe this. Don't reject all truth pointing to Jesus. Do not give yourself over to hostile denial. Do not stay there. The beautiful grace is that we don't have to stay in our condemnation. We don't have to remain there. We don't have to receive the wrath of God for our sins. The truth is that God is both a perfect Savior and holy judge. He has revealed himself this way from the very beginning. We read in Exodus this morning, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what God is about. We love that. 
But then it goes on. But will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is both Savior and God is both judge. And he does that perfectly. They do not contradict one another. So don't follow in the footsteps of the Pharisees and the scribes. Don't follow the way of man. Don't follow the way of your heart. It'll always deceive you. Don't walk in hostile rebellion, but rather run to the grace of God. Turn from that hostile rebellion. Trade that for radical faith in the face of the world, in the face of the scoffers. And when Jesus sees your faith like the paralytic, he will forgive you. He will forgive you of all of your sins. When God says all, he means all. Past, present, future. And he remembers them no more. He puts them away as far as the east is from the west. He chooses to forget them, to remember them no more. And say to you, and say to the paralytic, rise. Pick up your bed and go home. Verse 12, and he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. You know, they've seen, they've witnessed people being healed. They've seen demons being delivered. But they have never seen God say to someone, your sins are forgiven. That Jesus would say that to somebody. They've never saw anything like this yet. And so we need to be beholding this amazing grace that we see on display here. And give God all the glory. Like I said, this is our song. This is everything. That Jesus Christ would die for me. That he blots out my transgressions. That he takes haters of God... And he makes them lovers of God. This is our source of absolute joy, absolute hope, eternal satisfaction. This is everything to us. This is where we find rest. This is where we grow. This is where we run the race that is set before us. We have to keep remembering this truth. We have to keep remembering it because we forget. We forget the grace of God and the forgiveness he has towards us. Sometimes, as believers, we still feel unforgiven, right? Sometimes we have moments where we still feel guilty. The truth that in God's forgiveness, through Jesus Christ, you are not guilty anymore. We are not guilty anymore. We are not guilty anymore. The guilt was put on Jesus for us. Sometimes we don't feel forgiven. We have to remind each other of our forgiveness. We need to look at God's word and read things like this from Mark, reminding us that God alone forgives sin. Jesus has the authority to forgive your sin, and as a Christian, your sins are gone. The guilt is gone. We need to believe that Jesus is God, that he has forgiven us. We have to reject our feelings. We have to reject our flesh that wants to lie to us. The world, the flesh, and the devil wants to tell us that you're not saved, right? It's good to be examining yourself to see whether you are in the truth. But don't believe the lies of the world. If you are truly a Christian, relish in that forgiveness. Don't believe your flesh. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe Satan. You are not guilty anymore. There's so much hope, so much joy, so much relief from the anxieties of this world. 
from the fears of this world that are solved in understanding of the grace of God and his forgiveness for you. You're not guilty. He rose and immediately picked up his bed. Again, a picture of, of a believer coming to life. Rising, picking up his bed, going home. And they said, we never saw anything like this. So if you have been raised in Christ, by grace we need to obey him. By grace we need to walk in him. By grace we need to be amazed at him. Amazed at what he has done. That we glory in him and in him alone. That we thank him for the rest of our days. That we give him glory. Forgiveness so full. Forgiveness so free. Purchased through the death of Jesus Christ for you. Go and share that with the world. Remind yourself of that. Preach that truth to yourself Every day, and let that motivate your feet so that you have radical faith. Our chains are gone. We've been set free. Our God, our Savior, has ransomed us. We're going to sing about this in a minute. Like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. We stand here this morning under the amazing grace of God towards his people. And so relish in that, glory in that, share that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that your forgiveness is full. It is complete. And it is all by your grace. Lord, we can't do it. Lord, we, like Adam and Eve, try to cover our sin. We try to do good. We try to earn your favor in our own efforts, and it is useless. Lord, we thank you that by your grace you sent your Son, the one who has authority to forgive sins. We thank you that Jesus Christ lived the perfect sinless life for us and that he died the death that we deserve. And that he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, conquering our condemnation, freeing us from guilt, freeing us from shame. Yes, we still look at our lives. Yes, we still see sin that remains. But Lord, because we know that we are covered 100%, Lord, may that motivate us in gratefulness and thankfulness to obey you, to follow you, to live for you in radical faith and help us to use the rest of our days to do your work, to share this great news that Jesus is God and that he can forgive your sin. And let us ourselves relish in that truth, glory you because of that truth and use it to motivate us to the end of our days. And we await your return. We long for your presence. We long for the day that we are no longer separated by you physically. And we wait for you. We ask for you to come. Come quickly. But until then, use us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.